I mentioned it early in the retreat. Probably seems like a quite a long time ago, but it was actually probably four or five days ago. Um, that this path of awareness, this uh, uh, path of uh, wisdom and compassion, it's both wide and deep. And what we mean by wide, when we look at this journey, is that there's nothing excluded from practice. All activities, all relationships, all aspects of our life, all the contents of our minds, body, our fears, desires, doubts, joy, sorrow, none of these things are outside of the field of practice. Sheng Yen, a Chan master that we've studied with, says this, I think, very succinctly. Practice should not be separated from living. And living at all times should be one's practice. Living at all times should be one's practice. And as we cultivate this practice, that's what happens. It's a natural unfolding that more and more we begin to include all aspects of our life. We begin to let go of the separation that oftentimes we create of the sitting practice and the walking meditation and the formal meditation in the rest of our life. The fact is that we begin to see that everything we do is a meditation practice. That's wide. That's a holistic, organic approach to practice. And it's that approach that leads to liberation. When we talk about deep, what we're talking about is going deep within, developing an ability to see clearly how things work. It's a very difficult thing to see. When we begin to take a look at this process, you know, how do things work? Well, the Buddha discovered three characteristics, three kind of laws of experience. When he took a look at his own experience and practice, when he paid attention to the present, he made some discoveries of his own. Probably a lot of them may seem obvious. One of them I don't think seems obvious, at least on the surface. First of all, when he began to look at his mind, he recognized suffering. When he looked at the world that he was living in, he recognized suffering. First insight. Second one was when he began to pay attention to life as it unfolds, when he paid attention to the breathing, when he paid attention to his mind, when he paid attention to the world that he was living in, he saw that life experience is impermanent, that all conditioned things whether it's within us or outside of us, the nature of all conditions, things, are that they change, that they're impermanent, that nothing lasts. And finally, what he discovered was selflessness, a realization of no self. It said that the Buddha was interested in one thing, suffering and liberation from suffering. When we talk about suffering in Buddha Dharma, 
Oftentimes the phrase in this particular tradition is dukkha, which is the Pali word for suffering. It has many different meanings and there are many different levels. Generally speaking, we can see dukkha as discontent, unsatisfactoriness, a sense of incompletion, feeling of separation. But to begin to see into the nature of suffering. I think most of us, if we look around the world we live in, start taking a look at our own experience, it's it's pretty obvious, actually, that particular truth. And it's very obvious when one begins to sit, particularly if one begins to practice in a sustained way, like we did on retreat, like we've been doing on retreat. Think about the beginning of the retreat, if you dare. The sitting, the inability, I mean the complete inability to rest in the here and now. Kind of the inability to really like do the instructions, you know, to just be mindful of your breathing and body. The mind wants to do everything else but that. It's constantly moving, constantly projecting into the future, constantly getting lost in the past clinging to pleasant experiences, pushing away the unpleasant experiences. We begin to gain insight into just how powerful our conditioning is, how incredibly powerful it is when we begin to open up and take a look in a very direct way at our minds, when we begin to see the process, what this mind is engaged in. It's very humbling, actually to begin to practice, to take a look at this. And to me, what I get out of retreats, every retreat is different. The thing I walk away with so often is a feeling of being humbled. Being humbled by the power of conditioning. But what the Buddha discovered was that just recognizing suffering was not enough. Most people would agree you know, that the world is in a state of suffering often, and even people who don't even know that much about themselves can recognize at least a little bit of suffering. But it's not enough, and the Buddha didn't stop there. He wanted, uh, he wanted to understand the nature of suffering. He wanted to be liberated from suffering. So to understand the nature of suffering, what do we have to do? It's actually pretty simple. We have to start beginning to pay attention to our experience. We have to begin to pay attention to our suffering in a very direct way, in a sustained way. We have to develop the ability to sit with ourselves, to be with ourselves. That's why we emphasize so much patience. Because to begin to free oneself of one's suffering one has to understand one's suffering. One has to understand the cause of suffering. What's causing our suffering? Well, the Buddha discovered, for himself anyways, that ignorance, or not seeing clearly, is the cause of our suffering. To me, that's a profound insight to have, needless to say. 
he discovered that the confusion and conditioning that all of us are subject to, and the conditioning around seeking happiness and things that cannot provide us with lasting happiness. It's that confusion in the mind. You know, we all want to experience peace. We all want to be happy. It's the Dalai Lama, recognizing that all beings want to be happy. Something that connects all of us. But very, very few people know how to be happy, how to be at peace. And that's because of our conditioning. It's because of the things that we've learned. Certain ways that we relate to this conditioned world that we live in. Different misperceptions and misunderstandings or confusion. The Buddha talked about this confusion. He described it as torments of the heart. This confusion torments us. It torments us because it keeps driving us in a direction that doesn't lead to peace. It doesn't lead to peace. It's confusion. It's ignorance. We're not seeing clearly. And the torments of the heart are reactions to experiences, a relationship to particular experiences. And the common conditioned reactions to experiences are greed, hatred, and delusion. Greed, aversion, and delusion. Greed in terms of looking outside of ourselves, looking for pleasure, clinging on to pleasure when it's there and when it's not there, seeking it out in, in some desperate hope that we're going to experience happiness and peace. Greed. Aversion. What we learn in this culture is to try to avoid pain at all costs. At all costs. And of course, what does that do to our minds? Given the fact that life has both pleasure and pain in it, it's the nature of life. It's the nature of uh, the world that we live in. You can't go through a day without experiencing some pleasure some pain. It's just part of life. It's nature. And so if we're trained to avoid pain at all costs, it creates, of course, fear in the mind. It creates fear. We don't develop a capacity to be with pain. We don't develop a capacity to be with nature. We feel separate because we're pushing away nature. We're pushing away it. And of course, delusion is that confusion in the mind. The mind that's fuzzy, distracted, or, or preoccupied, or, or not connecting to the present moment. Oftentimes, that's a reaction in the mind. It's a relationship to what's going on, and then a disconnection, and not seeing. So how can we begin to understand the nature of suffering, and how can we move towards freedom? Well, believe it or not, it, st- it starts in the here and now. But I have an experience about something that happened in the past. It's a good one, too. It's a really good example of just what, uh, what's available to us, both on the degree of suffering and also towards freedom. A few years ago, I was teaching in late winter, it was in March, I was teaching with Larry, and I think, I think it was Monday morning. We started the retreat on Saturday, so it was like the second day of the retreat. People were just kind of, if you remember what it was like, it took a few days, really, to settle in. Um, we were just beginning to settle in. We were in the hall. It was like 8.15 in the morning. And I think I was doing like a, you know, one of those guided you know, 
it's a great day, um, that kind of thing, <laughs> trying to inspire people. And all of a sudden, two trucks pulled up alongside the front door here, which is not far from the hall, obviously, and these radios were really blasting away. Oh, that's just the beginning. <laughs> this is just the beginning. So listening to this hard rock music, actually it was like uh, 70s rock, 80s rock, something that was really, really loud and really intense. Um, and so we knew somebody had arrived. <laughs> was, was the insight at, the, at that particular moment. And uh, so after a little while, you know, not long, 5, 10, 15 minutes, the radios were turned off. And everybody's, ah, you know, peace at last, peace at last. And then about 10 or 15 minutes later, the entire building started to shake. <laughs> and this tremendous smashing and pounding and just tremendous racket and guys yelling and talking and uh, just hell broke loose, basically. And we're sitting here and be mindful of your body. <laughs> and, of course, we were at the shamatha phase of the practice. So <laughs> there's no open attention yet. So everybody was trying to mindfully you know, be with their bodies. But, of course, what do you think the mind was doing? I mean, everybody's mind went, was really reacting. Um, you know, and like I said, this was just the beginning. And, but the reactions were quite strong. And, you know, we got through the sitting, obviously, and then, you know, being one of the, quote, leaders of the retreat, I had to, of course, find out what was going on. Uh, and so I went into the office, and, you know, I was like, what the heck is going on? You know, I mean, this, you know, what's happening here? Um, and then I was told that these, this construction crew had shown up, and they were to replace all the windows. <laughs> in the building all, all in the main building here all the windows were going to be replaced and they were supposed to come the following week when there was no retreat but they just showed up <laughs> and you know sometimes if you ever work with no offense to contractors out there uh, if you ever worked with that, cut, that field <laughs> sometimes it can be quite unpredictable in terms of when the work gets done and, and when they show up you're, you're grateful and so <laughs> we weren't going to send them home uh, they had a job to do and they were going to do it and they really could care less whether a retreat was going on or not uh, it was, we were on their schedule so okay so the banging starts and it continues and it's, it really is I mean extremely loud they're actually ripping the windows with all sorts of electrical equipment you know, re- replacing the entire frames, everything, you know, I mean, everything. So, so all of a sudden, the conditions, obviously, on the retreat changed and changed quite dramatically. You know? And, of course, people were not happy about it. This wasn't a good development on the retreat, let's just say. Okay? So people are reacting, and you could see people's minds, and we, we started doing interviews, and you know, this, I came from the city, I came from New York, and, you know, the, I, I, you know, why do we have to be in the middle of a construction site? And, you know, I was listening to birds before, and now I'm listening to this. <laughs> and all this, and then we decided we had to push the practice forward a little bit. <laughs> and had to begin to open the field of attention up a little bit. 
maybe the body wasn't going to do it. You know? we, had to, we had to be a little bit more mindful of something else here. Um, I mean, we had choices. You know, people had choices. And, and when you, uh, in other words, what to do with those reactions that were coming up, all the anger and the frustration. It, I mean, it was really ama- amazingly disturbing sounds and vibration and noise and people. And I remember one time I went up to my room. And many people commented on how nice those rooms are. Uh, well, I w- walked in one day, uh, that day actually, I went walking in and there was a guy with his head staring through the window. That The window is no longer there. It was about 20 degrees out and he's looking at me and he waves hi to me. <laughs> and I liked those rooms there. They were a real refuge. And my refuge was totally gone. And I actually started a conversation with this guy as he was looking through the window, looking at me do my little routine. Um, so it wasn't just yogis that were being disrupted, it was us too. So we had choices. We had many different choices, actually, at that point. Uh, we, uh, we could, uh, uh, people could leave. They could demand their money back and go. Say, this is not a silent retreat center. Let's get out of here. And, you know, if somebody had asked for that, I'm sure the center would have given them the money back. Uh, nobody did, actually. Um, we could have organized the group. Uh, we outnumbered them. Uh, there's a hundred of us and maybe eight of them. Uh, so we could have, you know, shown force or, you know, done something, towed their trucks away or something, I don't know. We could get earplugs. That might even be the simplest thing, right? Just buy, get a set of earplugs so you're not subject to the noise. Maybe a few people might have done that, actually. That's another response. But lo and behold, there's another response. And that would be the response of wisdom in these particular conditions. In other words, we're in conditions that nobody can do anything about. And nobody's being harmed. Okay? Nobody's being harmed. The intentions of the people that are doing it are good. The windows need to be replaced. And what do we need? We need to practice with those conditions is what it comes down to. We need to practice. That's wise effort. That's wisdom, is to take life, to take that experience as a practice. And what that means is taking a look and taking responsibility for your reactions to things. To be mindful of the aversion when you face conditions that you don't like. On retreat, there are many conditions that we don't like. In the world, there are a lot more conditions that we don't like. And so how to respond to those conditions with wisdom? How to respond to those conditions that, lead, that our response then leads to liberation and a feeling of connection and a sense of inner confidence and strength in ourselves rather than contracting and running away or identifying and getting caught. The key is to be mindful of the reaction itself. It's so significant to do that. So much wisdom comes out of being mindful of your reaction. And the power of mindfulness is that if we're mindful of our reaction, we're beginning to let that go. Just in that moment of awareness that you're judging yourself for doing something. At least in that moment. Mindfulness might not be sustained. But even in that one moment where, oh yeah, I'm judging myself for the wandering mind. I'm judging myself because I'm not someplace where I should be on this retreat. 
the moment you're aware of that judging mind, that reaction to wandering mind, you're letting go of that reaction. You're beginning to change your conditioning. You're beginning to change your habit. And you're beginning to taste freedom. We're now beginning to discover that so much of our suffering is how we relate to the experiences that we're subject to, the different conditions that we find ourselves in, the different activities that we're involved in, the different relationships that we find ourselves in. Simply by taking a look at what you're doing in relationship to it, you're going through a ma- you're facilitating a major transformation. You're moving towards a peace that's unconditioned, that's not dependent on conditions. And that's freedom. You see, when our happiness is dependent on conditions, like pleasant conditions being here, unpleasant conditions not being here, we're subject to suffering. That's a very tense place to be, first of all, when you have to hold on to pleasure and you can't experience pain. But also the nature of pleasure and pain, like I said earlier, is that it changes. And so when it changes, there goes our happiness. There goes our happiness. It doesn't mean that we can't enjoy pleasure. It doesn't mean that we, we should seek out pain as some kind of virtuous thing. Not at all. Not at all. In fact, it's fine to enjoy pleasure. And in fact, I think through Dharma practice, one opens oneself to life more fully, opens to pleasure more fully, but also learns how to open to pain more fully. In other words, we begin to develop a more open-hearted relationship to the conditions that we meet. Some of them we're not going to like. Some of them we are going to like. But those conditions are most of the time not in our control. Take a look at the world you live in. It's not the kind of world that you want to live in, but it is the world that you're living in. Take a look at this body. You might not like this body sometimes. It's got a lot of pain in it, but you need it. So you take care of it. You take care of it. But you recognize that these things These impermanent changing conditions, whether they're pleasant or unpleasant, cannot provide lasting happiness. It's just that simple. They can't. It's impossible. But we can still enjoy things. We can still live life fully. But we know when we experience pleasure, we know it's going to change. We open to it and we let it go when it changes. And that pleasant state of mind of peace arrives, you know, on the cushion unexpectedly, or you're walking and all of a sudden, you know, the mind feels very light and peaceful, we can experience that. It's a good experience. It's, it's great to open to that, to see that the mind can experience something very pleasant. But then if we start clinging to it, we want it back. And when it doesn't come back right away, because we can't call the shots on that, when it doesn't, we suffer. We suffer. And we're only suffering because we're clinging. We're clinging. We're out of harmony with the way things are. We're out of harmony with the way things are. So, back to the windows. Working with that reaction, people really started working with their aversion. And one thing we reminded them to do was to be mindful of their reaction, see if they didn't feed it, but also 
observe the sounds themselves. You know, that was easy in a sense. I mean, you know, right there. But, you know, people started paying attention to the sounds that were occurring. And yeah, they didn't transform into pleasant sounds, but people began to see the nature of the sounds. The nature of the sounds is they arose, they arose and they passed away. And then they arose and passed away. And then they arose and passed away. And then they arose and passed away. A lot. Okay? So there was a lot of insight in seeing that. Okay? <laughs> Lots of insight. Too much insight. <laughs> seeing the changing nature. In fact, what you begin to see, and people, many people reported by the middle, you know, this actually lasted two days. Very interesting because when like five o'clock rolled around, everything got really quiet. And the evening was like really still. You could feel the breeze and the, you know, all that. And then in the morning, again, you know, seven o'clock, back. Um, so people began to see though, they working with it, working with the reactions, instead of giving up, instead of suffering enormously, you know, they started working with those conditions and people actually began to see that it was a way it, it was actually a way for them to stay more present, for instance. Really, people started saying, well, you know, it's keeping me awake. Uh, you know? Sleepiness is not an issue right now. You know? And that seeing, you know, that story that Ryan said, you know, that thing about seeing the good and then the bad back and forth, yeah. Uh, there was something good in it. It kept us awake. And we began to see that, you know, it was just sound. Literally, that's in a little vibration. Um, but <laughs> mostly it was just sound. And what our mind was doing to that, the expectations we had about retreats and the expectations about, uh, that, of what staff, you know, that people would be protected from that kind of thing and, and that all of, the, all of the stuff that we took to that experience was our stuff that we took to it. And of course, that's where the suffering was. People, by the end, I think they were sending metta even to the, to the workers. And, and by the end of the second day, I had a very solid relationship with the guy who was working in my window. <laughs> His name was Tom or something. <laughs> I don't think he quite understood what I was doing, but I definitely knew what he was doing. So that's working with kind of the the noble truth of suffering, and really discovering in a very, very direct way. These were, to me, those two days were ideal conditions for practice. I really mean that. Ideal. Perfect. Just perfect. So much learning happened. So much learning happened. And it was nice when it got quiet again. It was, definitely. When they were gone, it was still the retreat. It was still our minds. We were still reacting to certain things, only different objects. You know? it, but it was quiet, and it was much more pleasant. But it was quite a learning. It was a real teaching. Boy. I don't know if I'm going to get to all three. Let's just briefly talk about impermanence. Because <laughs> I want to get to selflessness. This talk sometimes goes over and I don't get to selflessness and then people start leaving me notes. And 
all that. So I want to make sure I at least confuse you before I go. Um, impermanence. You can know that all things are changing intellectually. And sometimes it's very helpful. It's a wise reflection. Often, you know, when we get caught or ensnared by our greed or our aversion to fear or a desire for somebody or desire for something, you know, it's actually an extremely wise thing sometimes to reflect on the fact that what we want, what the desire of our object, the desire itself, the fear that we're experiencing, its nature is to change. It will not stay the same. You know, and to reflect on that can be very helpful in terms of bringing the mind more into balance. It's wise thought, really. It's wise thought. But impermanence really needs to be seen very directly for oneself by paying attention to one's experience. And what happens in practice, and this is inevitable, it's a maturing that happens in practice, is that we begin to see the changing nature of the experiences that we're paying attention to. In other words, when the mind starts waking up, we start being mindful of those mind states that we talk about, or mindful of the breathing, or or mindful of our reactions, or mindful of the pleasure that we experience at lunch. When we start paying attention, you know, where is lunch now? Somewhere in there, right? You know, it's not pleasant anymore. It was pleasant when it was happening. We enjoyed it, but it's gone. That's its nature. So, be, so as we pay attention to life, as, whole, as life becomes a whole, we're living our life, we begin to wake up to certain kinds of laws. and We begin to wake up to the fact that all things are changing. Now, the, the common misunderstanding is just because that everything is impermanent, then it doesn't have any value. You know, somehow that insight devalues experience. And I would say it's the opposite, quite frankly. That seeing that life is impermanent or that it's changing for me makes me think of life as quite precious. And it's short. And you want to make good use of it. So you take care of your body. The body's impermanent. We all know most of us are not going to be here 60, 70, 80 years from now. And, you know, the body's impermanent. Sure. It's impermanent. But take care of it. Respect it. It's a great vehicle. You know, the mind is changing all the time. It's oftentimes in a tremendous state of chaos. But we still need to take care of our minds. We need to cultivate wholesome qualities. We need to cultivate the qualities that lead to liberation. You know, like metta and loving kindness and wisdom and compassion. That's taking care of the mind. Taking care of the body and taking care of the mind. We need to take care of our environment. Our environment is in a constant state of change. Constant state of change. But we still need to take care of it. We still need to take care of it. We need to value it. It's precious. So not to go to that extreme, but it's also to understand its nature is to change. It's an important insight to have because it shifts our relationship to our experience, but it shifts it in a good way, in a good way. Because when we begin to see the impermanent nature of things, we don't invest so much of our happiness in those impermanent things. In other words, we don't rely on them to give us something that's permanent. And there's a relaxation in the middle of changing experiences. We can begin to enjoy things. We can begin to live our life fully. But we're living in harmony with the way things are. We know they're going to change. 
We know they're going to change. And because we've worked on our relationship to those things through working with reactions and our clinging and our greed, because of that, we're not so threatened by the changing conditions of our life. You know, we develop this ability and confidence. And this is a wonderful fruit in practice, this confidence that, I mean, this is invaluable, you know, fruit of practice, which is this confidence that comes out of paying attention to your experience, learning how to respond to it without suffering, and actually being freed by those conditions, by the way you're working with those conditions. Tremendous confidence and inner balance develops in the mind where you realize you face conditions, you don't have to like them, but you know you can work with them. You know you can work with them. And that's the fruit of practice. Equanimity. It's wonderful. It's wonderful because now our happiness isn't so, our happiness and unhappiness isn't so subject to all these changing conditions in our life. You know, we need to pay attention to conditions. We need to take care of ourselves. You know, we need to get jobs when we need to. We need to find, you know, healthy relationships. We need to respect conditions. But we also have to understand their nature is that they're going to change. It's a process. It's a movement. Life is energy. And we can live in harmony with that. We can live in harmony with that. Live in peace with that. But we have to let go of our our greed, aversion, and delusion. And the way we do that is by paying attention to it. By being mindful of how it expresses itself in the moment itself. In the moment itself. I don't need the notes too much in this talk. Selflessness. Okay. About 10 minutes here. Selflessness is really not that complicated. That's it. (laughs) That's it. It really isn't. Beginning to see selflessness happens as soon as we as soon as we begin to pay attention to our experience and get a little bit of insight, we begin to taste selflessness. We don't, we don't even know we do, actually. And a lot of times we do begin to experience selflessness without even knowing it. Without even knowing it. And the way we begin to experience selflessness is when we begin to pay attention to our experience. Even in that moment of paying attention to your experience, you're beginning to taste selflessness. Because what that means is it's a shift in your relationship to that changing experience, moving from a place where we identify with that experience and take it as self, who you are, to something to observe, something to be aware of, something to learn from. That's the taste toward, that's the direction, that's the taste of selflessness. And selflessness is simple because it simply comes out of the practice in a very direct way, that understanding that there's no solid, fixed self that's separate from nature. Somehow, we've gotten into our heads that we're separate from nature. All of this nature around us, this building is nature, right? Everything around us is nature. The environment, everything. Nobody has a problem with recognizing that changing nature. 
Nobody. Nobody. Nobody sees anything really solid except us. But somewhere deep inside us is this conviction that there is this being and it's quite solid. It's quite fixed. And that's because we, and this is what the Buddha discovered, is that we tend to identify through our conditioning, we tend to identify with these different kinds of changing experiences that we have. We identify with these mental states that arise. We identify with the body. We take these things as self. We take them very, 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 very seriously. We identify with them. That's the ignorance of the delusion, is that when we identify somewhere in the mind, there's a sense that this is solid, that that's who I am, that's me. This is my fear. I hear that all the time, my fear. Now, you need to use language, so not to be, you know, you can never use my or me or I. Then you get in a conversation with somebody, it gets quite difficult. Um, so it's not to, uh, you know, not to get rid of those words, but it's more to see the truth underneath that, that there is no I, me, or my, that's actually solid. Your car, well, it's your, my car, well, it's your car for a while. You know, until, you know, you sell it, breaks down, it's not, is it still your car? No. It's my car for now. Okay? But then somebody hits it. You know, they're hitting my car. You know? There's a lot of identification with the experiences that we, that we experience all the time. The Buddha had a very systematic kind of description of, of classification, really, of these impermanent experiences that we identify with, and he called it the five aggregates. Very briefly, just go through the list. The five aggregates of clinging, the things that we tend to take as self, our material form, that's the body. Let's just say that's the body as an example. Second of feelings, pleasant feelings, unpleasant feelings, neutral feelings. A lot of the clinging goes on in that. A lot of constructing a self out of those feelings. Um, My pleasure, my pain, right? My pain, you hear that all the time. And there really is. There's a lot of identification with that shoulder pain. There's the shoulder pain, and then there's the aversion, but there's also that is my shoulder pain. We're taking it as self, even though it's nature. It's out of your control, but we still take it as self. Okay? Instead of seeing its nature, it's arising under certain conditions. It doesn't mean you shouldn't take care of your back or sit in a chair or any of that stuff, but it means seeing its nature. It's changing. Perceptions change all the time. Perceptions, constant, the ability to recognize Constantly change. Mental formations, thoughts, mental states. Consciousness, the fifth one. The knowingness of objects, the knowingness of experience. It constantly arises and passes away with experience from one moment to the next. All of those changing experiences, when, they, when we put them together, we collect them, that's where our identity is. And yet, when we pay attention with wise and gentle and sustained attention to what their nature is, we begin to see things more clearly. We begin to see that we are part of nature. And it's a tremendous release and relief to understand that, to not feel so separate. You know, a tremendous amount of our suffering comes out of this feeling of being separate. You know, separate from each other, separate from the world we're living in. You know? And that separation is created by this construction of a self. And of course, when we construct a self, we naturally have to construct an other and just think when we construct the self and other, just what that, what that misunderstanding of things, misunderstanding the nature of things, that we're interconnected, interdependent, we're all part of the same world, 
We're all part of the same universe. Differences, yes, but still there's this commonality behind those differences. You know, we're human beings. We're alive. We depend on this planet. You know, there's a lot of common ground there. When we don't recognize that, wars have started. Violence has started. Tremendous dukkha comes out of that sense of separation. And why what we're doing here is so important for the world that we're living in is simply that. That as we get in touch with what's true, as we begin to liberate ourselves from our own suffering, when we develop an ability to be with ourselves, we can then be with others in a fundamentally different way. When we're sinking, when we have an inability to be with ourselves, we cannot be with others and we cannot be with their suffering. Not in a compassionate way. Compassion just becomes an ideal. So often what happens is we have an ideal of compassion, yet we slide into fear and indifference in the face of suffering. The heart closes just naturally because of this sense of separation. So getting to know yourself, looking at your experience from one moment to the next in a sustained way, certainly what the Buddha discovered was this is what leads to unconditioned peace, the kind of peace that moves with you in life, you know, from one situation to the next, whether it's a pleasant situation or a difficult situation. You can find freedom, and you can be a resource to others. So let's sit for a couple minutes.